This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Welcome back to the DTC pod, everybody. I'm your host, Jay, and today we have a special guest with us. Benjamin Smith, who's the founder and CEO of Disco, a direct-to-consumer company that brings clean, natural skincare products to men tailored to their needs. Ben, we're super happy to to have you on the podcast over here. Really excited to talk about your brand and talk a little bit more about, you know, how you built this product into a multi-million dollar business. But before we dive into all that stuff, I want to give you a chance to, to give a little intro to the audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your brand. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jay. I know as we just figured out before we hit record that we're both here in Austin, Texas. So obviously... Wonderful to chat to another Austinite in a world where it seems like everyone and their mother is moving to Austin. So anyway, I digress a little bit about myself. So, you know, I went to, to Wake Forest University uh, for college. And while I was there, I started two gyms. So that's really where I sort of started my career in the health and wellness industry. That would have been back in, you know, around 2014. And, you know, operated and scaled those for about four or five years and ended up selling them both at the end of 2018. And as I was sort of you know, going through that transition, I was looking for the next opportunity, frankly, and I knew I wanted to stay in health and wellness. And for me, you know, skincare had always been a big part of my life. Growing up, I had a family friend of my mother who was a very prominent dermatologist and is now ironically Disco's medical advisor. And, you know, she taught me very early on to take care of my skin. And, you know, what that looked like was, you know, using, you know, sunblock cleansers, acne treatments for when I was sort of going through the hormonal changes that we all go through in our teens and that's really stuck with me. So when you pair the first part of my career, which was in health and wellness and gym ownership with the sort of upbringing and habits I've held in skincare, what you have is the love child of those two things, which is disco. So, you know, without spending too much time on the, you know, the sort of descriptor and, and sort of founding story, you know, disco was really started out of personal frustration with the market. So as a sort of, I want to use the term veteran, but like longtime user of skincare products, I felt like there wasn't any options out there for men from a men's skincare brand standpoint that really spoke to me and also were super effective. And frankly, like I would be proud to showcase on my shelves uh, or on my bathroom counter when I had people over. So it was really quite a simple reason for starting the brand. And from there, it sort of evolved into a broader mission about, you know, making men feel comfortable in their skin and sort of destigmatizing the you know, conversation around men using skincare products. So that's a little bit about the brand. Um, we ended up launching in October of 2019. So we've been around for, you know, just over a year now and uh, are sort of moving into an omni-channel play now too. That's sort of a little bit about the brand and how we're thinking about things. That's awesome. That's really cool. So, you know, I know you mentioned you had some experience in the wellness industry, starting those gyms and stuff like that. And that's kind of what turned you on into the skincare stuff. Obviously, you know, Operating a gym is very different from operating a skincare brand. What was your process like in terms of going through the research and developing the product? How did you kind of figure out what to do there? Like, who did you turn to? I know you mentioned your family friend. And like, what was that process like to eventually come up with your first product? Yeah, so a great question. And frankly, usually the first one I get asked. So I'm happy to sort of dive in. I really had a strong thesis around building and crafting a brand that 
wasn't hyper masculine. So, so many of the men's skincare and grooming brands out there, you know, sort of fall victim to this like visual identity or sort of ecosystem of, of positioning themselves in a hyper masculine way. So what that looks like to give you specific examples is, you know, very black and sleek or, or very like blue and outdoors focused. And you know what, frankly, like all of those brands are going to win too. There's plenty of white space in the category for all different types and positioning of brands to win. I just personally felt like, you know, a more unique colorway and name and mission and product line was what would sort of deliver, you know, the biggest possible impact. And so that's why I went a little against the grain when it comes to the way our brand looks, the name we chose, et cetera. And when it comes to, you know, the product formulation to respond to your question, you know, that was critical to me because having been in gym ownership, as you alluded to, I obviously, you know, invested in taking care of myself for the most part, seeing as I own gyms, right? So I was very invested in using clean products, both in and around my house and then, you know, in my bathroom as well, including my skincare products. So the issue I saw with the clean and sort of natural skincare market was that a lot of those products lack efficacy because they don't have like the powerful active ingredients or chemicals that, you know, many household skincare, et cetera, personal care products have. And the real reason I brought in that medical advisor was one, to bring some credibility to the business, but more importantly, to advise on the formulation process. So Dr. Eva Simmons O'Brien is our medical advisor. She's professor at Johns Hopkins. She went to Dartmouth undergrad and Yale medical school and has her own private practice now. So she's certainly no slouch when it comes to skincare. And she was instrumental in advising me and our team of chemists when we were developing our products, which you know, at launch were seven total products, five facial skincare products, and then two body products as well. So we really wanted to come to market with clean products, like I've mentioned a few times, but having the dermatologist involved, Dr. Eva, allowed us to really make sure that we were deliberate and intentional about certain ingredients we included within each product SKU. So an example of that might be caffeine or peptides in our eye stick, which, you know, that product in particular helps with dark circles, puffy under eyes, et cetera. That's just one example of a product. But um, yeah, we, we wanted to take care to include, you know, two, three, four really powerful active ingredients within each product. And in case, you know, someone doesn't know what that means, who's listening, it's essentially like the two or three highest percentage ingredients that make up the product you're in. So this is a good way to read like any skincare products or cleaning products or personal care products you're using. Usually the first three or four ingredients on the label are the, are the products or the, the ingredients that are sort of most present in that formula. So, you know, suffice to say, long story short, we really invested in our formulations and that's sort of what's allowed us to scale because our products work and our return rate is less than 1%, even with a 30 day trial on our site too. So you know, the dividends are sort of paying for themselves in the sense that we brought Dr. Eva on to really deliver a top-notch customer experience when it comes to our products. Yeah, I, I love how involved in the product you are in, in terms of not even just like, you know, being a, a really powerhouse, like in the knowledge of how the product works and like even educating people that are listening about skincare and stuff like that, which is really sweet. And I know one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, your mission is a little bit different than some of these other like hyper-masculine brands out there. What was your thinking in that process of trying to differentiate yourself? And um, what are you doing in that sense in terms of the other market players? So you mentioned a lot of them are like, they have like black colors or like trying to like be like hyper-masculine and stuff like that. And so I'd love to hear your take on that stuff. Yeah. So it's certainly becoming a more crowded category, which I actually think further validates our original thesis around this being a big opportunity. 
I know actually you mentioned earlier, how did you sort of validate the idea? And I actually didn't answer that question. So just quickly to touch on that, we conducted a market study of about 5,000 participants. I set up a number of sort of like dummy uh, Facebook and Instagram accounts and ran ads to basically like back into and validate what our paid CPAs would be on the paid channels. Because those are so instrumental for a business like ours to succeed. And then basically use all those signals to raise some initial angel money to prove out the concept and whatnot. So anyway, to come back to the question you just asked a moment ago, the space is becoming more crowded. But again, like I view that as, as very validating and not something really that keeps me up at night. So while I can imagine that every founder of all these competitive brands probably keeps an eye on what our competitors, what their competitors are doing, I think it's sort of one of those situations where like the rising tide, you know, brings all boats with it or whatever the expression is. Because frankly, like the opportunity is so large, something like 20 to 25% of men over the age of 22 are using skincare products, which is nothing, right? I would argue that the percentage of women over that age of 22 that are using skincare products is probably two or three X that. So what you're seeing is like kind of a gold rush for brands to sort of capture market share of men that are buying, already buying skincare products and then, you know, positioning themselves to be the first sort of port of entry into skincare for the first time users too. So how we think about sort of differentiating ourselves is multifaceted, right? Like the easiest way and the simplest thing to talk about is brand. Like how do you stick out on social with your ads, with your creative, with your community? So that's something we're super focused on. Obviously we, we obviously designed the brand, as I mentioned a few minutes ago to be, you know, what we think is pretty different in terms of what's out there now. Um, so that helps as like a first impression with the brand is people usually are kind of a little taken aback. So that helps. And then on the, on the product side, you know, having good products can make up for sort of transgressions elsewhere in the business too. So I'm not saying we're, we're doing everything totally right, but you know, by all means, like I think one thing we did do right was invest heavily um, both from a time and resource standpoint and a, and a cash standpoint into our products, because if you have good products, you can sort of make up for, you know, indiscretions and stuff on the brand and marketing, et cetera, side. You know, obviously we're focused on the various elements of the business to make sure the full customer experience is great. But again, like our products are, are fantastic. Our return rate is super low and we're only continuing to improve and sort of revise those formulas and our packaging over time too. So I also think form factor on the subject of product is really important. So, you know, when we think about like delivery mechanisms, we're dealing with a pretty pretty substantial uphill battle here in terms of how we educate consumers and persuade men to buy skincare products, you know, because of the, the low numbers of adoption rates that I mentioned earlier. So we have to create like innovative experiences with, from a product standpoint so that men enjoy using the products. And what that looks like for us, um, to give you two examples, I know I already mentioned the eye stick, but we were one of the first men's brands to put eye cream in a stick form that you can bring with you anywhere. So whether you're going on a date or you know, about to walk into a meeting or, or start work or whatever it may be, we all sort of suffer from different under eye ailments from a skincare perspective. And, you know, this product bottles that up in a way that's like pretty novel and um, easy to sort of inconvenient to travel around with. So that's one interesting way we're thinking about form factor. The other is our cleanser stick. We weren't the first, but we were one of the first to do that as well. And frankly, like that was one of the best decisions we ever made. You know, cleansing is probably... That and maybe moisturizing are probably the most two important, arguably, if you don't include applying a sunblock. And we really took care and effort to make sure that our cleansing experience was pretty enjoyable. So we actually made it into a solid stick form, like a deodorant stick. So when you apply that product, it's actually applied like you would apply a deodorant, but on your face. 
And, you know, we're getting rave reviews and traction because of that too. So, you know, those are just two examples as, as we sort of progress and, you know, release more products on our roadmap throughout the next year or so, we'll continue to invest in that form factor side of things. And then lastly, I, I would add, you know, definitely distribution. A lot of people don't think of that as a differentiator, but I think if you're able to build a brand and have products that are both fantastic, distribution opportunities present themselves and you should take advantage of them aggressively as they present themselves. So especially for a D2C brand like us, where there's always rising acquisition costs, Omnichannel is becoming an even bigger focus for us, especially throughout this year in 2021. So we're definitely excited to roll out a number of pretty big retail partnerships this year. We already launched in Nordstrom's at 50 stores plus their online store a few weeks ago in early January and are seeing great sell-through rates and adoption rates there. So again, like it would come down to brand, product and form factor and distribution. That's awesome. Thanks for diving into that so much. I think one thing that, that really caught my attention that I'm interested in diving in a little bit more on too is I want to talk about, you know, when you were building the brand and you mentioned that before you raised some extra money, you did this Instagram strategy to help validate the market and the product as well. So would you mind like diving into that a little bit more um, on what you did over there um, to really have some good validation to present to investors? Yeah, so it wasn't anything too crazy. My knowledge of growth marketing or user acquisition at the time was far from where it is now. Still no legend or veteran or expert by any means, but it definitely has come a long way out of necessity, obviously. But back then, you know, what I did was basically just create a fake Instagram and Facebook page and then, you know, put up an ad account associated with both of them as well and created some dummy assets like UGC style content and just push them to a fake landing page. It's not fake in the sense that it doesn't exist. Fake in the sense that like there's no actual real brand behind it and just sort of got a feel for what our click-through rate would be and sort of what it would cost to capture emails. I didn't actually set up like fake products and stuff, which in retrospect, like probably would have helped me raise more money at a better valuation. But, you know, we are where we are. And I think that was what helped us raise our initial bit of capital that helped us get going. So that was sort of our strategy for that. And any entrepreneurs that I sort of like help or advise now who are in super early stages, that's like a prerequisite for me helping them is sort of validating what sort of CAC you can roughly expect. It doesn't have to be exactly what you think. And of course, it won't be exactly what it'll be when you actually launch, but just getting a good handle on what your rough user unit economics will look like from an acquisition standpoint before you really invest in like building out a brand and, and really understanding like, is there actually legs to stand on here? I'm sure you'd agree as a, a head of growth yourself, like that sort of validation is super important. And I just don't think enough people do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to do that. And I, I totally agree. You might as well spend some money to validate before you you spend some more money to build out a product, especially for consumer products when it's, you know, you're investing money into inventory and things like that. I'd be really interested to hear too, um, especially from, you know, building out a consumer product like that and and trying to do some market validation. What was that point that you realized when you were testing that you said like, hey, this is enough validation for me? to keep going? Like, did you try and like acquire like a hundred people, a thousand people? Yeah. So it's a good question. To be honest, I was pretty hell bent on doing this idea or sort of starting a men's skincare brand, regardless of the outcome there. I think it was somewhere between like a hundred and 150 emails at like, I can't remember the exact cost per email, but I benchmarked it off of some blog post I read that did a similar sort of test to basically, you know, sort of demand to test demand generation before like sort of, you know, launching a product. 
And there was a bunch of investment banking reports and sort of societal, uh, cultural things I'd noticed. And that was actually more important in this specific instance than sort of like the paid acquisition testing. Because if you look at like societal trends and where in general, like America's heading, people are taking much better care of themselves in general, men and women of all ages. And that's sort of like the overarching hierarchical theme I noticed. And then I noticed that, you know, people were starting to take Korean skincare, which is sort of like the golden standard for skincare very seriously. And we're generally about five years behind them in terms of trends and whatnot. And what I saw was that men's skincare there was blowing up. And I thought it was only a matter of time with all the time that we spent in front of screens. Now more than ever after the pandemic, I could never have seen that coming. That, you know, people will really value what their face looks like. You know, obviously uh, lots of female influencers are sort of known for using filters and stuff, men as well. But normal guys, like eventually this, these sort of like tools for makeup and for filters, et cetera, will filter down to us. We're sort of like the slowest movers. So I, I just sort of like took stock and thought about and reflected on the, where society was heading and had a lot of conviction about skincare becoming a much bigger part of men's lives. So it was really like that paradigm shift in society that made me want to go do this after I was personally frustrated. And I was sort of hell bent on doing it anyway. The sort of like user acquisition test for 100 or 150 emails or whatever it was, was, um, was more of just like, okay, I've got my ducks in a row. I can at least talk about this in initial investor meetings and whatnot, you know, paired with the societal changes that I just sort of walked you through as well. So a few people saw that and agreed with me and were kind enough to sort of support me early on. And, you know, obviously without that, it would have been a lot more challenging. Yeah, for sure. I love the way that you've positioned this product. It's so different than the other men's skincare stuff that's out there. So I'm really curious, especially, you know, in terms of competition. So obviously you're competing against those other premium uh, men's skincare products, but you're also probably competing against things in the drugstore, like the $3 and $4 face cleanser that a lot of guys are probably used to buying. So I'm really curious, like in terms of your content strategy, how do you position yourself against not only the competitors in your space, but even the people that you're trying to basically acquire to get on the trend of taking better care of your skin and skipping the drugstore thing that's $4 that might not be that great for your skin? Yeah, that's a loaded question. So firstly, from a branding standpoint and a pricing standpoint, we positioned ourselves to be just below like some of the bigger, more luxury, well-known brands in the space. So think like Kiehl's, Jack Black, et cetera, but also, you know, priced ourselves above, you know, sort of the more drugstore brands, as you put it, because we think that, you know, the thesis or biggest opportunity is to create something sort of in the middle, like a premium massive sort of brand is the term I use that is affordable and accessible enough to guys, um, you know, that don't make a ton of money, but the brand is also cool enough for, you know, folks that do, you know, take in quite a bit of discretionary income to also feel like they're, they're part of a brand that's really premium, you know, they're proud to have on their bathroom counter. So we're sort of operating in this nice, like middle ground where we firmly understand their identity. It's not as if we're sort of like stuck between two opposites, but it, we get the benefit of, you know, obviously positioning ourselves in a premium fashion, but also being attractive to potential retailers as well, because we're not priced out the wazoo, like 40, 50, $60 and beyond per product. So we make it accessible, but you know the unit economics have to work for us too on, on the business side. So that's why we've you know come up with the price point we have, which is sort of like sixteen to thirty five dollars in between that range. 
because you know that allows us to connect with two different types of customers, frankly. And you know, we think as far as the brand goes, that our brand speaks nicely to like the hyper masculine guy, but also on the other side of the spectrum, the super effeminate man as well, and everyone in between. So I think from a brand and a pricing standpoint, we've walked that tightrope really nicely. And that's really lending to why people are responding so positively to us um, in our acquisition funnels and with potential retailers and influencers, investors, et cetera. That's great. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. I'd love to learn also a little bit more about your content strategy specifically, like in terms of the content that you put out there. I know obviously you tested a little bit with ads before even starting. Is there something that you found that specifically, you know, helped or or been working really well um, in terms of the content strategy that you're kind of doubling down on? Sure. So a couple things to talk about non-paid content first, just like our organic community that we're growing on sort of Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. We're focused on sort of delivering a handful of different content pillars. So memes and tweets to sort of keep the humor and keep things light, but not sort of devalue the brand. Before and after sort of UGC content, some interesting product photography. And as we scale now and raise announce our, our fundraise, we will be bringing on some team members to stay specifically focused on that. So a creative director, a social media manager, et cetera. And we'll only continue to invest in content more and more, especially on the education side of things. So I think education is so important because as we've talked about a few times throughout this call, such a low percentage of men use skincare products, adult men. So the onus is sort of on us, sort of our fiduciary obligation. And it's also like what will help us succeed to educate the consumer. So I think it's about striking a balance between educating the consumer, keeping it light and engaged and sort of lighthearted and fun. But also eventually, once we have more money in the bank, of course, putting out content that is just really shareable and viral. So that's sort of like the content strategy for organic social. We're definitely messing around a little bit on TikTok and having some good success there in terms of that translating to sales. But when we talk about paid creative, which I know is sort of probably what you're getting at a little bit more, it's pretty typical stuff, right? Like in 2021, UGC stuff works, problem solution oriented positioning and marketing funnels and landing pages tends to work. And that's not just, you know, respective to men's skincare and us, right? Like that's, that's for most brands. So that's really what we're sort of leaning into at, at a broad level. UGC content, really problem solution oriented selling and copy and creative um, landing pages, et cetera. And I think that'll continue to be super important, at least for the next year or so. Beyond that, I actually don't know what the next frontier of content is in terms of like where the cycle will go, whether that's like memes or video or still photography. I know for a while it was always like sort of beautiful photography. And then recently it's been mostly focused around like user generated content, UGC. So it'll be interesting to see where that's heading. And I'd I'd actually be curious to ask you just quickly, if you don't mind, like if you have any thoughts on that, you know, given what you do. Yeah, I am honestly leaning a lot more into short form content. I think that's going to be the key is a lot of short form snippets um, and things like that. I think UGC is still going to be important. Um, I think video is going to play an even bigger part, just especially in the consumer space, because like what we're seeing a lot of stuff is, you know, 
that before and after or like the problem solving and stuff like that. And it's really hard to display over image content. So I'm really interested to see how things play out. But I do think we're going to see a lot more short form content than really long form investments. And I think there's also going to be a lot of educational stuff. So some of the stuff that you talked about and some of the stuff that we've actually brought onto the podcast as well, people talking about creating blogs for their brand and just even educating consumers, not even just about the product, but educating them about like for skincare, it might be like how to take care of your face, like things you should be doing for your night routine and and stuff like that. And so I think uh, we're going to see a a lot more companies operate like that. So I'm really excited for the next frontier of content. Um, But yeah, it it should be interesting. And I'm really interested from you actually to learn a little bit more. Uh, You know, you've talked about, you know, the content strategy and kind of what you did to help kickstart the brand. I know offline, we kind of talked a little bit off this uh, podcast, we talked a little bit about how you've had a few ups and downs in the business. And obviously, that's typical for every business, not every day is going to be, you know, a 40k sales day or anything like that. Um, There's going to be ups and downs. So I'd be interested to to learn a little bit more from you, like, you know, what are some of those challenges that you faced? And um, have you overcome them? Like, what are the lessons that you've learned? And um, how has that helped drive your strategy moving forward as a business? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think being a founder is glamorized, even at the really early stage that we're at. Listen, like we haven't had some blockbuster exit and whatnot, but even at this stage, like people glamorize it and sort of think it's like fun and easy and, um, you know, et cetera. That's just not the case. Obviously, like I'm doing what I'm really passionate about and I'm, I get up every day, super happy to get to work and work very long hours, which was what I signed up for. But I think the glamorization of being a founder is very misunderstood by people that are not like, at least in the space, right? Like, so that's one thing I would just forewarn people on who are considering starting a company. Like it's probably going to be way harder than you think it is, regardless of what industry or category you're starting a brand in, whether it's consumer or otherwise. Beyond that, like you have to be willing to dig deep when things, I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but it's just the experience I've had when things don't go right. And pretty much everything went wrong for us from launch up until like the middle of last year. We had a disastrous sort of like website ecosystem from a development and a design standpoint. You know, our conversion rate was super, super low. We couldn't figure out how to acquire users properly. We ran out of money a couple of times. I was putting stuff on my credit cards, like pretty much like the typical like Guy Raz, how I built this situation where like if I ever, when I should say, sell disco for a bazillion dollars, I'd be happy to sort of regale in greater detail. But yeah, basically all the like classic startup founder um, ailments of like, you know, not knowing when I'm going to get paid again, uh, having to put stuff on my credit card, having to ask people for like emergency loans from my current investors and stuff. And, you know, finally in, in the sort of like summer of 2020, we really started to find our stride and, and, you know, figure out how to speak to customers better. And that's what's allowed us to scale so quickly, especially in the last like six to seven months. So we're entering a really, really exciting period of the business where we're just hyper growth and we're rolling out to a ton of retailers. We're launching new products, hiring a team. It's sort of like that crazy hectic uh, stage, if you will. And what's so interesting to me is that, you know, before it was like, hey, how do we get people to buy our product? Like just anyone, just a few people a day. Now that we've more than cracked that, now we have a whole unique set of new problems, right? Now it's how the hell do we get inventory to service purchase orders and our like our daily Shopify orders? So, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis at this stage, we're dealing with a totally unique problem set. 
And that's super fun and dynamic to me. And honestly, like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want to do anything else, frankly. So that's sort of been my experience. There's been a lot of ups and downs. It's been a lot of ups recently. There's for sure going to be tons more challenges in the coming months and years as well. But, you know, frankly, nothing we can't handle after what I've been through before. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was that? What was that turning point like, you know, in the summer, you said that you started leaning into your customers and talking with them and stuff like that. So what was that turning point like? What were, what were you doing a little bit differently that that helped change the outcome? So three things. We added a post-purchase survey into our checkout, which had five different reasons why you bought the product. And that allowed us to sort of figure out why people were actually buying Disco versus like the sort of naive thought at the time, which was like, well, of course they buy Disco. We have a cool brand and some cool products. But that's actually like very naive. And you know, putting up this Enquire survey in our post-checkout survey situation allowed us to actually understand why people were buying. And from there, I also reached out to about, I don't know, 50 to 60 customers and just sort of asked for their feedback about things that they, we should do differently from like the website experience to the product to how we you know, market ourselves. And a lot of the feedback matched up directly with why people buy through that survey. So I started to notice like patterns between the two of them. And it wasn't like this crazy, I'm sort of making it sound like this crazy, complicated, like data analytics exercise. It was really just like me looking at, you know, one screen that said, you know, why people were buying and then just sort of noticing in these conversations that it matched up with the, um, with the survey. And then we quickly realized like we need to acquire customers in a different way. So obviously we're on all the digital channels then it was just, we didn't really understand our customer before. So I would say that like until middle of the summer, we didn't really have product market fit. Now we most definitely do. And we're only continuing to evolve our messaging and copy and landing pages and creative and on-site CRO work or conversion rate optimization work. So yeah, it was really just becoming smarter about acquisition, user acquisition, and at a more deeper level, you know, really understanding why customers like and want to buy Disco. So I know that's like maybe not the most specific answer, but I would caution like, and I would warn other e-commerce founders that haven't quite figured out how to get their store from like zero to one or like really get it to scale to just spend more time with your consumers and understand why they buy it. And then once you have like a significant enough data set, either through like a post-purchase survey or just talking to them or both, then you can work backwards and sort of reverse engineer your website copy, your landing pages, what you include in the creative, et cetera, so that you know you start to actually speak to your customer better. And that's basically a way to like hack customer insights and psychology without having to pay some company to do it for you or read tons of consumer insight studies and stuff. So that was sort of my experience. Yeah, for sure. And I'd love to get a little bit more specific over there. So I'm going to ask another targeted question. Uh, so with your feedback specifically, where did you see most of the, what you learned? Where did you see your learnings go into? Was it like updating, like, you know, digital marketing stuff? Was it working on the product? Was it changing like the post-purchase, like, Experience, obviously, you know, consumer products don't have like an onboarding sequence like a software product might, but, you know, you probably have like, you know, those sequence of post-purchase emails and things like that to get people to repurchase. So I'd be curious where you kind of landed on there. So just to quickly touch on the email, like post-purchase experience, I actually would argue that because so few men, 49% plus of our customers are first-time skincare users, are novices, that we actually have to treat our email flows post-purchase as like a sort of white chalkboard to sort of educate people and hold their hand on like what they bought, 
how to use it, et cetera. Because like we're doing a good job of saying like why you should buy because we switched to problem and solution oriented selling. I think we've built like a really convincing case on our landing pages and on our site and our creative, et cetera. So it's pretty robust funnel. But you know, once we get them to buy, it's about getting them to actually use the product and understand the benefits and then understand like what happens when they buy some of the other products in our product suite too. So we really do treat the post-purchase email flows very seriously. Obviously, we add a ton of humor in too because we're finding that men just respond better to humor as well. But so that's something that's been really important for us. And to come back to your original question, we redid everything. We totally redid our website. So if you remember a few minutes ago, I was talking about our website being somewhat disastrous. We redesigned the whole thing. And then every week, you know, I spend probably three or four hours just playing with our website on my phone, my iPad and my computer. And then I send into my dev you know, five to 10 changes to increase conversion rate. And it's just continued to go up and up and up ever since we started doing that, you know, six months ago. So total revamp of our website, our Shopify store, total revamp of like the positioning of the products and how we talk about them from a creative and copy standpoint on our ads, all the way to like the landing page and the copy on our website too. So yeah, basically like a total 180 in terms of strategy and execution on digital, especially like the paid digital channels. And, um, you know, that's what's made the difference for us. That's awesome. That's incredible. Well, Ben, this has been an incredible episode of the DTC pod. We've really enjoyed having you on over here to talk about disco, all the things that you've learned, the things that you're changing and all of that good stuff. Before we wrap up over here, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share where people can learn more about disco, where people can learn more about you um, and tell us a little bit about what's next for disco as well. Sure. Yeah. Again, thanks for having me on Jay. Good to chat with a fellow us tonight. In terms of where you can find us on the socials, TikTok and Instagram, we're at let's disco. Instagram is where we're most active. You can find us at letsdisco.com on the web, which costs us a pretty penny, by the way, we used to be letsdisco.co. So Thankfully, um, we're now letsdisco.com. That's a maybe a story for a second podcast visit. <laughs> In terms of uh, you know potentially buying, I'm happy to set up a discount code. We'll just call it D2C Pod for 15% off your first purchase. So again, DTC Pod for 15% off your first purchase. And as we think about you know the future, you know there's definitely more retailers coming online. We're hiring a bunch of um, roles to sort of expand our team. We are planning to roll out new products as well as a host of other exciting things as well. So we'll continue to improve our website experience and sort of like the customer ecosystem and our products as well. And, you know, frankly, are, are super excited for a you know, massive 2021 ahead. Awesome. Well, we're going to keep a big eye out for Disco in 2021. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciated having you on here. Everyone in the audience, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the DTC pod. If you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. <laughs>